The more we tell everybody in the world about great food and culture, sustainability, sovereignty, the more people will understand and value food, which I, I really like that message. I'm Franz. I'm AJ. And this is In the Weeds, a podcast about the food and beverage industry, past, present, and future. Our goal is to legitimize food and beverage by sharing stories of people we meet, learning new things, and having some laughs along the way. Be sure to check us out on Instagram and intheweedspodcast.com. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to In the Weeds. This week, we are speaking to the Bishop of Butchery, the Prince of Pate, the Sultan of Sausage, the Maestro of Meat, Mr. Corey Palin from the Holby Salu Maria. Hope you all enjoy the show. I just wanted to say this is super, super exciting. I'm, I can't believe that you were so willing to do it so quickly. We were kind of scrambling this week to get somebody to come in. So this is wonderful. I had another Zoom call this evening with my daughter. It was her 19th birthday. So it's like, it's, it just worked out. It's like one or the other one. I, I might have had another glass of wine than I would have <laughs> normally had. but um, Hey, it's perfect. No, it worked out well for me too. Yeah. Is that a glass of wine? Like that this is not <laughs> I, was like, I like how you do wine <laughs> i i had the glass of wine now this is uh yeah. irish whiskey <laughs> anyways uh thank you so much your reputation precedes you can you start off by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself go f- sure. as far back or as much as you want to well skip everything before cooking school start there there we go. i did a whole bunch of stuff my staff will uh my staff will tell you all my stories about the crazy jobs i've had over the years but I did. I did go to cooking school as a as a change of careers in my early twenties. Just had a there was a creative side of myself I didn't realize was there. So a little later than most of the people in my class, um, I then got into the industry, started cooking. I, I went. I, I moved fairly quickly because I realized I wanted to be in the management side of things, and um, I was really interested in running a restaurant and owning a restaurant. I was. I guess still a little bit romantic about the whole idea. Um, I had some pretty cool bosses, um, good mentors back there, back then, um, living in Vancouver at the time. Right. Um, Worked for a few years, and it wasn't long after I started hearing about this cool food scene on Vancouver Island. And people were talking about using new words like um, farms and local food and you know walking down the street to get ingredients as opposed to um, waiting for the truck to pull up the back door and there was nothing vancouver hadn't hadn't explored that at all yet um fine dining and the the pinnacle of great food in vancouver was still um, very french or even swiss and um and it wasn't necessarily about ingredients it was more about technique what Um, year are we talking about this is early 90s, uh, 94, 95, I think is when um, I was getting my feet wet. Not long after that, my I met my future wife, started thinking a little bit more about the career. We had a baby, um, started looking closer at Victoria, and I had this other motive for coming over because I just I was really excited about ingredients. And, and I think a, there was a few... A few chefs out there in Italian and Spanish cooking styles that were really just ingredient driven, and that that really that really held my focus at the time. 
Um, so I came over here. I had a couple jobs, but I met a fellow, a chef named Brock Windsor. He was my first sort of local food mentor. We worked together at the Brentwood Bay Lodge and Spa. We opened that up. Oh, yeah. And we had this sort of crazy carte blanche palette to work with. It didn't end up going all that far because we, we were pretty crazy, but we were doing some really cool stuff. We were going down to the beach and foraging for shore crabs and making uh, brown butter with crabs that we got off the beach. Well, <laughs> the customers are watching us and, you know, and when mushrooms are delivered, they, we get, we had them delivered into the dining room, you know, not into the, not a, into the back door. Oh, that's cool. And the ingredients come in the front and really involved the, the, the guests and the whole experience. It's a pretty cool team. I learned a lot. I'd say Brock is my sort of food mentor. I have other mentors that were more sort of management styles and admin and, and that taught me a lot about running a business. Um, but Brock really was my creative um, mentor. Is he's, he still is he still he in the is, scene? He's He actually runs the food program at North Arm Farm in Pemberton. Oh, cool. He, he was chef at Sue Garbrows for many years. And, right. That's um, why the name sounds familiar. I was trying yeah. to... Yeah, right. Um, Barefoot Bistro, mm-hmm. um, bunch of he was out with uh, Michael Stadlander and I at uh, in Ontario for a while. So after that, a series of other places I worked at, but it it all kind of culminated at uh, in a small Italian restaurant on Quadra Street, twelve thirteen years ago, called La Piola, and I had a, a, a managing partner agreement with the owner there, and I was in in a in a position where I was going to buy the restaurant. Stuff licensing and then the city of Victoria ended up making that impossible. But while I was there, um, went back to that completely ingredient driven focus. Everything was about uh, what we were getting from our suppliers, our local suppliers. And, you know, uh, companies like Cisco and stuff, their contribution came, came down to soap and paper products, you know. <laughs> um, no food was coming from any of those places with the acceptor some citrus and, and spices and stuff. So it was tons of fun. I had a really great team. One of those restaurants where there's just no, nothing comes back to the kitchen. Everything's just ex- accepted and, and, and logged for what we're doing, you know, and it was a lot of fun. One of the things I did there, one of the things I realized cooking Italian food, the importance of, of cured meat and salumi one dish I wanted to do properly was carbonara, among other things. But carbonara was something that uh, the owner, Alberto, taught me how to make a real carbonara, his Nona's recipe. And it was just something amazing. But what it was missing was real guanciale, cured pork gel. Um, you just couldn't find it in Victoria. There were there's a couple places in Vancouver that could get it. And there was a, a pretty passable... Uh, version from Boza in Vancouver, but we had to actually go to Vancouver to get it. And right. I did some research and I realized how easy it was to make. And so I contacted a fellow named Michael Windle, who owned the Village Butcher in Oak Bay, about getting um, pigs. Because you can't, at that time, you can't just buy, I couldn't find just jowls. You'd have to buy a whole pig, have the mm-hmm. two jowls off that pig, you make a guanciale. And, but then I had the rest of the pig to deal with. So guanciale was the first thing I made, um, pancetta as well, because you could just buy bellies, and it was carbonara that really, that really was the, the driving force. It didn't have time during the week with service and everything to deal with the with the pigs, so I'd always have it come in on a Sunday, 
Uh, Michael would bring it on his day off. I would just be by myself in the kitchen with the pig and with a fair amount of research, trial and error, and a few phone calls to chefs like like Rob Belcham. Um, I figured out uh, some techniques for curing. Mostly at that time, whole muscle, pancetta, guanciale, uh, copa, lonza. What is it um, for our for our guests that, uh, or sorry, our listeners that aren't as familiar with the uh, terminology? When you say whole muscle, what yeah. is that? What is that opposed to? Opposed to ground uh, cures like salami. Okay. So there's there's quite a steep learning curve, and I've I've gone deep into this already. I know you guys wanted my history, but really that was the quick. Yeah, you know, no, 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 that was perfect. The, the quick and dirty sort of how did I get here? When dealing with salami, that's another level of 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 technique, and more importantly, uh, safety. Um, a lot can go wrong. A lot of stuff. A lot of bad things can happen when you introduce the outside of meat into the inside by grinding it. Mm. Um, if you keep the outside on the outside, and you've salted it, and you hang it that outside gets dry really quickly and no bacteria can grow on it. You've completely, you've got a safe sort of coating. Um, but when you grind the meat, you, uh, you introduce all that into the middle. So you have to do, um, you have, there's a few techniques to make sure that uh, you don't make people sick. And at that time I hadn't, I hadn't learned that yet. Um, although I ended up playing around with it, I wasn't going to do it for, um, for paying customers, it was going to yeah, be. of course. Well, yeah. I mean, obviously, at that time there wasn't the reliance that we have now on smartphones and quick connectivity and and, no. and all of that, like that wealth of knowledge that the internet provides. What were your reference books? You, I'm sure, I'm guessing that yeah. plus talking to other humans who knew about it. But what was what were what were your favorite reference books? I was curious. The about The first that. book I got was Charcuterie, the Ruhlman Polson right. book. Uh, that taught me how to make sausage. To be honest, and that was another passion that I, I'd never really made sausage before. Uh, we had is a couple of restaurants I worked at where there was a guy that had that skill, and we would come up with recipes, and he would do it. But I never really had the time as a chef to go. You know, it's funny when you become a chef, you learn stuff, but you can't. It's tough to go back down and learn from your guys. You know, because right. you're um, you're so busy. But um, that book taught me how to make sausage, which later on really helped with making salami just the technique of making a good bind, um, fat content, um, spicing ratios, um, trial and error, just knowing, you know, a good salt ratio to meat that translates all the way with, with, from a bratwurst to Calabrese, you still want that percentage of salt. Um, so that book, um, and that book helped with the, the, the whole muscles as well, just getting good ratios of curing salt. And, and salt and then times how long to cure something for. I then bought a book. The Culinary Institute of America put out a book um, called Charcuterie. It was their textbook, their handbook they would give students when they went to their charcuterie lab. That was helpful, although the units were all screwed up because it was in um, pounds in a, and ounces. In America? Ta- tablespoon. <laughs> Curing salt shouldn't be uh, measured in tablespoons, folks. Right. Just a good word of advice, grams. <laughs> yeah, everything by grams. I've been teaching yeah. everybody that I know uh, with recipes that that's, that's the way to go. Yeah. <laughs> this isn't your, uh, your auntie's muffin recipe. Right. Yeah. No, no pinches, <laughs> no heaping tablespoons. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> there was another book I got called The Art of... Um, the art of fermenting meat or the art of fermentation in meat. 
And that, that book was like the technical Bible on, on, um, on salami making. So now we're introducing bacterial cultures and fermentation to, as a safety step and subsequently a flavor step too. But that taught me a lot about drying processes, humidity in drying rooms, um, different types of cultures from uh, bacterial cultures and what they do and what they introduce to, um, to the fermentation process. Incredibly, incredibly handy book. I learned a ton from that. And in between, I, at this point, we're sort of at the tail end of, of La Piola, and I'm now about to open the whole beast. Still teaching myself how to do these things with this great vision that I'm going to have all these products. Now i got to figure out how to really make them mm-hmm. and to make enough. Because before you hang three guanciale, that's, you know, there's a month of, uh, or five guanciale, you get a month of carbonara there. But now I'm, now I'm thinking I've got to have a display case full of these things and I could be busy. Right. Um, I also wanted to do wholesale. So I had a lot of interest from other chef friends that, that wanted this product, a locally made product for their restaurants. A huge amount of interest. Enough that I knew that I would at least keep the lights on with wholesale. Was that like the, the catalyst, like the aha moment where you decided to go instead of going the one direction into uh, restaurant business or being a, a, a head chef of a place to opening up your own like salumi and charcuterie type focused venture? Yeah, I think, I, I think you know, heart to heart with my wife, you know, and then talking about what the future was, this, this restaurant that, that I'd kind of put everything into did, wasn't going to work. Right. So I, I thought about maybe taking the name and then moving it somewhere else. I looked at a couple of locations. I actually put an offer on one. It didn't work out. And it was, you just look back and you go, things happen for a reason. Mm-hmm. Um, this isn't working. And we're at the, at the very bottom of the economic downturn at this time. This is 12 or 13 years ago. Mm-hmm. And the, the economy was shit at the time. Mm-hmm. It was the worst time to open a restaurant. <laughs> maybe since I've ever cooked another reason. And then, you know, and then, and then sort of searching for what I really, really, really liked and what I really loved to do and what part of, of, of food was, was really grabbing my, my heart. And it was me caring at the time. It was very, I just loved it. So it just made sense. Mike, um, the village butcher, uh, one day he came in and he's delivering his, his meat. And he's, he's, he's like, you know, I've, I've been hearing you whine about this whole thing and this, these deals aren't going through. And I've, I've got a location. I want to move the butcher shop. We've got to leave where we are. We found a spot down Oak Bay Avenue, but it's too big for us. And it's kind of strange because it's got a separate entrance Hmm. and it's kind of like two shops, but they're connected. You can walk from one to the other. And in the back, he's like, I was thinking if you wanted to do this thing, you know, get off your ass and I'll, I'll, you can sublease that from me. And we talked about it. And there was a sort of a built-in clientele. So his clientele yeah. was going to come follow him. Right. And I at least had those people that were going to come over and take a look, mm-hmm. um, which was, uh, I was extremely fortunate to have that. Um, you know, after opening, you know, in, within three months, we were, we were in the black. Basically, because we had that built-in clientele, but yeah, it, it made sense. It all kind of came together. A lot of things happened, and um, I just kind of went with it, hoping that, knowing that there would be some wholesale, knowing that I'd probably keep the lights on with some wholesale, 
but also hoping that Victoria was ready for a standalone purpose-built charcuterie business or, or cured meat business without, not a deli. I, d- I didn't really have any other products other than the meat. Most people think that and they think deli, they think sandwiches, um, cheeses, all the huge array of stuff on the wall. Mm-hmm. Um, and we really didn't have that. We were just very focused on on the products that we started with. Well, there was nothing else in Victoria that was being made in Victoria at that time, really, was there? I mean, there's there was other purveyors of other people's work, like Otavio and Shirelli's and stuff like that. Actually, I don't actually know when Shirelli's came into. Shirelli's was around. Otavio and Shirelli's. I couldn't remember. Basically flanking. Shushu as well. Yeah, and Shushu. Shushu yeah. yeah, so there was Shushu. That's right. And That's right. Luke and Paige mm-hmm. um, were, had been there for a few years. And Luke was making stuff. Uh, they were a they are a deli, so they had sandwiches and they had cheeses and they had all the stuff on the shelves. So they really styled themselves as that. But Luke was uh, just like me, really passionate about making uh, cured meats and salumi and charcuterie. So he he bumped out some really cool stuff. What he was great at was more of the French uh, side. Yeah, I remember um, getting those terrines, pâtés and terrines, yeah, gras. Um, he did saucisson sec and he made pancetta. All kinds of stuff, but on 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 a smaller scale because he had his shelves full of other things. Um, we decided that we would only sell products that we made in the meat case. So we started with upwards of fifty products, and um, they were all. We just basically kept making stuff until we didn't have space to put you know on our shelves. Ended up with about fifty. We still have about fifty products, but they've rotated and. What was the what was the lead up time? I mean, from you open the doors, you know, on a Monday. How how far back had you been working and curing and drying and getting your products ready for sale? Like, what kind of what kind of time investment does that take? We were about eight months. Wow! And so wow. building the place. So between because the 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 location was a, a mess. Mike and Rebecca. Uh, the butchers had a bit of capital, a bit more capital than me. Uh, so they had a fellow, a contractor do uh, their side. My, me and my partner didn't. Uh, so we, we basically did all the work ourselves. Um, so in between doing that and at, uh, during the day and at night, we would take and borrow the butcher shop when they were closed and do all our curing in there overnight. Um, we did, the first thing we built was a, uh, was a walk-in cooler in the back uh, parking lot of, of the whole beast. And we I turned that into a drying room. So we were able to, to manufacture the stuff up the street and then hang it in the, uh, in the drying room while we were building. Um, very little of that product in the first four months ever made it to the shelf because it was a lot of trial and error. We, right. we threw out some stuff. It was, it was basically scaling up from a a one door reach in glass fridge at La Piola to a 12 by six foot walk-in cooler. So little problems become very big, very quickly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so there was a lot of, okay, well, we got to tweak this. We got to do this. We didn't have a lot of money to build a, a, a proper drying HVAC. So <clears throat> um, dehumidifiers and humidifiers and, and um, you know, just directing air, controlling airflow, um, eventually we figured it out and started making stuff 
and for about four months, we start we we were in full production before we opened hmm. the the smoked products, and that's just the dried stuff. So the six or seven salamis we had, and the seven or eight whole muscle products we had, um, a, the majority of the stuff that was on the shelf at the beginning was smoked stuff like bratwurst and chorizo and bacon and ham, um, tasso ham and brisket and all that stuff. And those things we were able to produce fairly quickly. We actually used Bradley smokers at the beginning. We had two of them. They were like the (laughs) twin towers. The doors (laughs) fell off. And then, you know, we'd we'd rig them with a different system because those pucks are so expensive. So it'd be like they're the proprietary smoker puck for a Bradley is just a complete ripoff. So we figured, we realized that you could take a, a stainless steel um, half cup, measuring cup, and just scoop it full of smoker chips and put it on that little hot plate in the Bradley and it smokes just fine. No problem. There you and go. then so you spend nice. 10 bucks on a big bag of chips <laughs> instead of a 500 bucks on these little proprietary pucks. I- I always had this this weird little fantasy of having a poster on the wall where you could like accumulate photos from every chef who's ever used a Bradley smoker. So you could have like just a photo of how they've Jimmy rigged it and just have like <laughs> yeah. windows of these different smokers. I just always thought that would different be the best stages thing. of disrepair. Yeah, and... or like yeah, whatever crazy concoction they've made out of them. Yeah, Bradleys have a great warranty, by the way. As long as they don't think you're using them commercially. <laughs> so you, you you register them at your home. <laughs> Good plan. <laughs> and That's they send brilliant. you new elements and new parts, and the, you know. So. Oh, that's brilliant. <laughs> I can't imagine the amount of confidence it must have taken to, yeah, uh, take the more complicated uh, products and be like, I'm pretty sure this is right. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. You know, like like you said, there's a lot of trial and error in yeah. that process, but it's like. I mean, on one hand, I'm trying to imagine what that process with working with VHA or Island Health or whoever it would have been. It was um, CRA or the uh, CFIA at the time. Yeah, yeah. and then National. having yeah, and having the stones to go and say, yeah, this isn't going to hurt anybody. Let's do this. Yeah. Well, by the time the CFIA is great because they actually tell you they're going to come and do an inspection and they want to basically sit, stand there and watch you. Uh, they were mo- and and they really only care about the salami. Because uh, that's where all the risk really is. That's right. that's the really potentially dangerous um, where the, where botulism and, and things can occur. So they they booked an appointment and they came in and they and, and they also they're great because they give you um, a, a big thick dossier of, of of material for you to know. They they approach you like this is what we what we do is we help you in in case somebody out there gets sick. We want to make sure that you're prepared to prove that it wasn't you. Yeah. These are the things you need to do, assuming you know what you're doing, to make sure that we can track everything back. And so that that's their main focus. Viha is about washing hands and making sure everything's clean and dishwashing and sanitization. As far as the the salami and the dry curing, they really just kind of let let that fed the feds do that. So it was actually kind of nice having dealt with local health, uh, municipal health authorities, Vihan Coastal for years, who don't have anything in writing and will never tell you what's going on until they tell you what's wrong or what's going on. 
So they're actually quite a breath of fresh air to work with. I'm, I have a bit of a science background. I went to university. And so, and I think coming back to the confidence part, part of that for me was knowing a, a fair amount of the science behind it already and understanding that and being confident with working that way. To me, the idea of introducing a bacteria and fermenting and dropping the pH, therefore having a harmful environment bacteria, that just makes total sense. Mm-hmm. Like, who came up with that idea? Who's the genius that did that first? <laughs> and I'm like, I'm just, that, that's just amazing to me. And, and not, not a complicated thing if you do it right. It's actually not that complicated. You just need to follow the procedure. And it's like, it's like baking, baking as opposed to cooking. Yeah, um, it's the a, there's a recipe. Are, you follow yeah. that recipe, and if you if you you know if you if you're, you have your wits about you, you shouldn't have any problems. Yeah, <laughs> in theory. I mean, it it's amazing to not... it's amazing to consider how these recipes and techniques were established. Yeah, you I know, was thinking the same. However thing. many hundred years ago, by a couple dudes in a basement and some food yeah. they didn't want to go bad. Yeah, like why don't we try this? And <laughs> like, no, 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 that's good mold. I promise. Yeah, and you're like okay. Necessity oh. is the mother invention. I mean, you're cooking for your life. You're making sure that you can have enough uh, sustenance through through the winters um, and the rest of the year, yeah. you know, um, without refrigeration. Can you give us kind of a a simple rundown of of the curing process? Like, I think there's a lot of people who look at that process and just go, "That's black magic," and I don't understand. But it tastes good. And you're, yeah. you know, with your background, it sounds like you have a relatively good grasp on, on that process. So explain it to me like I'm a three-year-old. So the, the simplest um, way to cure something, very simplest way, um, is to just add salt and a lot of salt. More salt than you would ever, ever need. And a great example of that is salt pork. And that goes back to um, the British Navy or mm-hmm. the Spanish Navy. Needing, needing to carry protein with you for over a period of time. So when you add enough salt to protein, you've taken the water and saturated with, with sodium chloride. No bacteria can live in that environment. So you've, you've cured it. Hmm. It's inedible at that time. So what, at that time, what they would have to do then is refresh it or, or soak it in water a number of times to then bring it back to edibility. Um, if you want to add less salt, the amount of salt that would season something, you have to add other things or take other things away. So curing salt um, was found by accident. Potassium nitrate was the first one. And that was basically, and they didn't know it at the time, a way of, of protecting the prevalence of botulism. So botulism was a big problem with early cures. And once sodium nitrate was found potassium nitrate was found, that became a non-issue. So that's really all that does. The side, the side effect of, of nitrites and nitrate is, is there's a definite cured flavor. Um, it also keeps the, the meat pink. That's, a, that's like a, um, an added benefit. More complex curing, less salt, adding something like nitrates, um, and then removing water. After curing, after salting, you can then hang something to dry, and that would be the last step in, in, in safety. Once you've removed water, then again, bacteria can't grow. Bacteria needs water. It needs active water, so not salty water. 
and it, and it, and if you remove the water, then no bacteria can grow. So beef jerky, biltong, salami, all those things are dried to the point where there isn't enough water, so you can keep their shelf stable. What um, I mean, even in that, even though that's simplified, there's things like what kind of environment do you hang that in? Like that in my own times and working with meats and stuff like that, that was one of my biggest problems because you mentioned Mm -hmm. about the chamber or wherever you're hanging it is too cold or too warm. It's very precise with like, is that, is that something that is product specific? Does it, or is that something that you could get like a generalized temperature for a lot of different things? Yeah, no, it's, it, it is specific to products. So whole muscle cures, like we were talking about and Mm -hmm. salamis like different environments. And the environment, the drying room or the curing, the drying chamber, um, I think of it kind of like a like a, a triangle. And there's three main uh, factors. There's three main elements you need to control in there: temperature, airflow, and humidity. And those things need to be in balance. Depending on the product you're drying, that's a different. You know, the airflow might be a little stronger, the humidity might be a little lower, and the temperature might be a little higher. Those three things that will have to be in balance. Um, temperature tends to be higher in a drying room. Um, so what we're doing is is removing water from the product. That can't happen too fast, or what's going to happen is a dry crust will form on the outside of whatever it is, um, and that will eventually um, stop moisture from removing. So you try to dry things too fast, it'll rot. Mm-hmm. If you try to dry things too slowly, the, they'll rot. So you have to have this very even and relatively slow drying process by keeping things pretty humid, 75 80%, fairly warm, because heat's going to um, encourage moisture loss. So 12 to 15 degrees sometimes. I usually keep mine at around 12 or 13. And then enough airflow to keep things moving, but not too much. So that was actually the the biggest challenge for me using a walk-in cooler was keeping the airflow even right. and not having too much, because you know, a big fan in a walk-in cooler, it's just blowing straight out at all the product, which is great if you're, if it's a cooler. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I had to build baffles to move the air up into the top to try to get it to flow around the outsides of the racks and the fan blades that are on a, on a regular cooler coil are made of metal and you can actually remove them and, and bend them to feather them. So they're not actually blowing the air quite as strong. Huh. So I bent the, all the blades. So they're just blowing air like softly. <laughs> was that your idea or did you? Yeah, uh, no, that was my idea. I was sounds looking like at a, what I had and going, what the hell? Yeah. Lots of uh, engineering projects yeah. in there too. Yeah. Well, Again, and I'm sure I know I've I've called you. You've always been super generous whenever I've called you with problems and stuff like that. It, it was stunning how easily you you were available to help me. That was one of my first real problems where I I completely like screwed a, a, a several batches of things. Just that airflow thing, like you said, where I the outside that. forms yeah. that crust, and <laughs> I'm baffled as to why the inside isn't curing now. But yeah, yeah, yeah. case yeah. hardening. That's, yeah. that's what it's called. Yeah, and we've we lost a lot of product because because of those those things. Just trying to get those three things in the balance. In balance. Yeah. Is there any product that you won't that you won't get close to that you're like I don't uh, 
you know the Simpsons episode where the sushi chef is like yeah. with the blowfish. Yeah. <laughs> is there any is there any kind of like black black arts that you just won't get involved with? Not really, not because of like hazards or, or danger, but there is there's a uh, there is a great V and if you ever taken like like food safe to level two or three, it's often one of the what happened videos <laughs> that you watch. You know, um, a chef who will rename remain nameless um, made a uh, a batch of of metwurst in uh, at a restaurant in vancouver metwurst is like a liverwurst but it is um, fermented and cold smoked and served raw kind of like in duya and if you don't ferment it properly um you're gonna cold smoke it and cold smoking is a perfect sort of it'll ideally breed a lot of bacteria if you if you don't ferment it well enough anyway he, some people got very sick and, and a couple of people died so for some reason Matt worst is kind of a, a scary thing, but hmm. I mean, it's no different from any of the other things I make. And I think the reason I don't make it is because I don't really like it, to be honest. That's fair. <laughs> yeah, that's fair enough. But no, I, the things that I don't, I cho- I've chosen not to make that I've made and were more about practicality. And, you know, I'd love to be able to make dried hams, um, a Victoria or Island version of prosciutto. Um, our, our, north island country ham or whatever you want to call it and i i still i'd still love to be able to do it and i have plans to um but it's not practical they take up so much space they're big big things and a ton of inventory so that's yeah that's one of the things no i'm not really that scared of any of the processes i think if i were in europe there's a lot there's a lot less regulation around how things are done over there I, I think that just makes it more fun, you know. This is one of the things that makes these products unique, and and I say unique compared to the uh, the stuff you buy in a grocery store that's vacuum packed and hanging in the deli section are are the unique um, flora and and microbiome that you introduce to the product that that just doesn't exist in 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 highly manufactured versions. We we're regulated a little bit heavier here in North America. So mm-hmm. we can do a little less of that microbial terroir fun in Europe. You can, in some countries in Europe, you can still have your own culture, your own fermentation culture that you've had for years. Like you would a, a sourdough starter. sourdough starter. Yeah. 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 And you, <laughs> what's called backslop. You take a bit of meat from the last batch, you know, to the next batch. And, and, um, so Paolo from a village one, on one road, 20 kilometers away, his cousin's making the exact same recipe, but those two sausages taste remarkably different because of their, their microbial terroir. You know, what cool. Have. I didn't know that was a thing. They're, yes, they're mother absolutely. bacteria. <laughs> yeah. The, the uh, Lucky Peach did a really, really cool, and I, I wish I'd, I'd come up with that term. I love it. Microbial terroir. Yeah, that's um, brilliant. Lucky Peach did a uh, an article on it, one of the early issues, and they had um, chefs that made salumi in in America make the exact same recipe. Chris Cosentino was one of them in San Francisco, a fellow in New York and a fellow in the Midwest somewhere. They all made the same recipe of the same saucisson sec and 
fermented them, cured them, and dried them all the same way. And then they actually they tasted them, but they also they also did uh, a full bacterial workup on them, and they found a completely different sausage. Hmm. The different um, uh, yeasts and like the flora that populates the outside of the salami, the molds and the yeasts, and then the bacteria inside did different things. I think that's super cool. Like yeah, that, that is super cool. Absolutely. That's, that's why we do, that's why we do what we do. It's, yeah. it, that's the fun part. It's, it's kind of neat. I think that most food and beverage people who deal with bacterial cultures, that always, it kind of boils down to that being one of the most interesting parts of the jobs, whether you're doing beer, wine, salumi, yeah. you know, like a, your baker, you know, like those kind of things are, are, I, are I find very fascinating oh, with an, as well with, too. The, with products that have so few ingredients. You yeah, know, you have exactly. To be able to, you know, yeah. Have your, your diversity yeah. comes yeah. out of that stuff. Tell us about yeah. your pigs. Yeah. <laughs> so we've, uh, we have two main suppliers. We get a lot of pork from, um, Tom Henry at Still Meadow Farm in Machosen. He raises our, our heritage breeds. So Berkshire, Tamworth, sometimes large black, sometimes Yorkshire land race bred with any one of those three breeds. Um, and we get, uh, through the, through the village butcher, you know, between four and 10 pigs a week, depending on the time of year, how busy it is, how many orders we have. Um, a great deal of that meat comes over to the, the whole beast, all the legs, most of the bellies, a um, bunch of loins, all kinds of stuff. Those get cured. Um, we make hams. Those whole pigs aren't enough to supply enough meat for everything we make. So we get, uh, we get pork from uh, Johnston's in the Fraser Valley as well. They have a nice operation where they're raising naturally non-heritage pigs. Um, but it's a good family run operation. I'm really happy with them. Um, so that's all our pork. And we've worked with both those companies for a long, long time. Hey, everybody. If you are loving this, please, right now, go to patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash in the weeds podcast. And please consider becoming a monthly supporter. A little bit goes a very long way. Back to the program. Do you find that, I mean, I, those products are going to be more expensive uh, and that cost is going to trickle down to the sticker price. Do you find that uh, choosing those products is just like a, a choice that suits your ethics and your values? Or do you find that there's enough of a flavor difference that your customers you you can you can taste it on the fork absolutely no yeah both um we notice a big difference even even from our standpoint just producing the product like grinding that kind of pork you know immediately when you're cutting it um the difference if for whatever reason one of my guys gets a hold of a uh you know or, or buys something from thrifties or if I, even i do and then you take it home and you start feeling that uh pork it's completely different there's a lot of water content. So from mm-hmm. a production standpoint, you can tell the quality right away, the the end product, the flavor. And I would attribute it a lot to the fat, the quality of the fat. Quality of fat is really important to us. We need firm, dry, and abundant fat in pork. And um, battery-raised, highly industrialized pork is is really, really poor quality. The the protein and the fat is is really not suited to sausage or charcuterie making it makes terrible charcuterie and then you're taking that poor quality pork and you're um, in a lot of cases drying it so you're concentrating those flavors 
and off flavors happen in, in, in that kind of pork, almost like, a, I mean, Belgium uh, attributed it to, uh, to like a piss, like kind of almost a, Ammonia, um, uric kind of yeah. overtone that comes out because you're just you're just, you're just concentrating it. And the last thing you want is anything bad in there once you're uh, once you're going to dry it up like that. Um, so starting with the best quality is going to give you the best product. And there's just no there's no question. There was no question from the beginning that we use the best we can. We also get we do get stuff from Tanadice Farm up the island as well. I forgot to mention um, they do some great stuff. A lot of our beef come from, comes from up there as well. Have you had any supply issues since the world went sideways? Well, no, no supply, but prices did go up from the Fraser Valley product that we got. Uh, we just bought more from the island. The island supply chain wasn't dis- disrupted in any way. Hmm. The prices didn't go up. We didn't have a supply issue. It wasn't affected for obvious reasons. The prices came back down with the with the Fraser Valley stuff. If if we were buying Alberta or, you know, God forbid, American stuff, I think it would have been a different story. Right. But no, and I, I think there were a lot of conversations with consumers about supply chain. If there is a silver lining to this whole thing for us and for food, I think it's um, the conversations that people have had about sustainability and supply chains that wouldn't have happened before. We have a whole new customer base that have come in and, and decided to shop locally and shop responsibly, not just with us, but with all the small producers and small butcher shops in the city and on the island hmm. um, because they were legitimately afraid of where their food was coming from because it was a big topic at the beginning of this whole thing. Right. Yeah, it was kind of refreshing. We've been fighting for that for a long time, trying to get that, that message out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, it took something like this for some people to, to get the message. Well, that kind of segues into the other question I had about the things that you've been involved in, in over the years, like um, the, the Island Chef Collaborative and um, the Slow Food Vancouver Island. Um, can you tell us a little bit about like what that means to you and why it's important for you to be involved in those those groups? And those yeah, I, I, yeah, the, uh, the Island Chefs Collaborative was... Uh, I started with Brock. I'll go back to him. Um, he belonged to them. And uh, that started out with a bunch of, basically a bunch of chefs that got together to try and, and almost selfishly to, to try to share contacts and try to figure out where to buy local food. At that time, there were no, there was no way to get um, vegetables from farm A or farm B except to go to the farm, which wasn't a big deal, but not everybody knew where the farms were. Aside from driving up and down Oldfield Road and, um, right. you know, just like literally knocking on doors, you didn't, nobody knew where to go. And everybody was really clamoring to get great ingredients. So the, the collaborative kind of got together as a bunch of guys that, you know, would, over beers would share their contact lists. Um, shortly after that, some of those farmers expressed the need for some assistance. There were farms that were doing amazing, amazing vegetables and just just like pouring their hearts into this into this food, but we're not gonna make it. You know, high rents and, and high costs. Anytime you're making food from the heart, you know, there's there's gonna be a cost. And uh, so the Island Chefs Club that kind of morphed into a, a fundraising effort 
and that's when I, I joined. And so we started holding small benefits or dinners to raise money for certain farms. We, we put a fund together and gave out grants. We then went fairly big scale and started doing a food festival at Fort Rod Hill. We had thousands of people and made thousands and thousands of dollars and then just gave it all away. It was, it was awesome. <laughs> we did it, we did it for four years. That's not, it's kind of in a bit of a, a flux right now. So I'm not sure what's happening. I was, I, I've been on the board for, I, don't, I can't even count, but what it needs is an influx of new young what i was 15 years ago so hopefully that'll happen and and uh, the icc can be what it was the uh, slow food i joined because i was really interested in the international movement of food sustainability and and how you know globally that um that was being dealt with all i really knew was the island and interested in how some of those efforts could be um could be used here I just learned that was really, and Slow Food really is about learning. And it's about, you know, they don't expect their members to raise money or raise funds or pound the pavement. They expect their members to learn and grow and enrich themselves with food knowledge and food culture. Right. That's right. their math. That's yeah. their message. The more we tell everybody in the world about great food and culture, sustainability, sovereignty, the more people will understand and value food which I, I really like that message. Um, ended up going to Italy as a delegate for a slow food conference there and uh, served on the board here for uh, a few years. That was great. You know, all those things kind of, you know, built a, um, uh, an ethos that, that really sort of drives the business. Do you find that um, you are feeling pressure these days to have kind of like a a flashy public persona or to have like a robust social media presence or to kind of keep up with the Joneses, um, so to speak, or do you feel that you're, you know, because of the, the, the tenure of your business, you're, you're well established enough that you don't necessarily need to kind of play in that ring. No, I definitely feel that pressure. I feel that need. I, I think just as a, as a businessman, there's that also that side of me. And um, I actually really enjoy that part of of what I do. I enjoy the business. I enjoy the administration. It, I'm kind of weird that way. I I love the building. I've always loved creating and building. So I see that as always an ongoing thing. And yeah, social media, reinventing, keeping keeping be, be, keeping relevant. I think is incredibly important. I don't want this to just peter out and become. Um, uh, a little old man corner butcher shop in my retirement. I would like this to stay as awesome as it is forever. And that's not really just my heart driving it. It's It's got to be, you've got to get the word out. We actually just hired a fellow to do social media for the butcher shop and the, and, and the whole beast because it's not something I, I enjoy. And even though I was relatively competent at it, I really you know, it's, I should get some, I, I felt I should get somebody that really knows their stuff. I've definitely noticed in the last little while that yeah. I'm seeing you pop up a lot more. Yeah. Uh, so I can't, I don't imagine it was that long ago that you, no, it was just it. No, two months ago. Yeah. 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 We just did it. It's noticeable. Yeah. No, we, I, I'd been thinking about that for, for well over a year, how I was going to do that. And just making sure that people, 
understand that we're, we're, you know, we're motivated and we're still doing stuff. And we, I, I want, I've got all kinds of ideas. I've now, we're now at the point where I'm kind of peeling off a little bit and starting to think about what I can do next. That's going to tie in. I wish the city would allow food trucks on, on public streets because yeah. ne- we need a meat truck. Yeah. But you have to have private property and, uh, and there's no festivals and, but you know, something to that effect that, you know, but yeah, we want to keep, we want to keep relevant and keep inventing. I think that's really important. Yeah, uh, There's no way that, that uh, anybody is good enough to just rest on their laurels. Right. You, you have to, you have to keep working at it. Do you think your, uh, do you think your, your kid is going to pick up the, pick up the knife? No. <laughs> <laughs> that's what Castro said last week too. Yeah. Fully. You're like, so your kids are like, no, not at all. Yeah. She, yeah. she had every opportunity to, but, uh, no, she's, she's lucky enough. Unlike me at her age, she just turned 19 today. Right. Right. She's lucky enough to know what she loves now. I, I had no idea when I was there. I loved that like, is a gift. I yeah. loved nothing good at the time, but it's likewise. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, she's found her passion. So we've, we've completely supported that. She had, she worked at the, at the shop. She'd help out at Christmas, work the tail and stuff. But uh, no. What, what is the, uh, what's she into? Dance. She's a dancer. Oh, Art. brilliant. Yeah. Brilliant. Um, she has actually, when given sort of a choice of a bunch of things that she might love to do, um, cooking and baking is actually in there. You know, I've, I've I've told her that that would be a terrible idea, but if she wanted to do it, I'd support her. <laughs> well, yeah. I don't know See what you did to your dad. <laughs> <laughs> Comparatively to when um, uh, we were a lot younger, I feel like there's a there's definitely a push, especially through social media, for a lot of uh, young people getting into baking and making some really yeah. impressive, beautiful stuff. Like there's there's some people in town that I know who are doing collaborations with other businesses and making like truly gorgeous baking and uh it's it's yeah. surprising you know like i don't know if that's always been there or if they're just utilizing social media in a in a, in a bright new way but i mean yeah it's, i think it, i think that you've got you're onto something there it's yeah. certainly a lot easier to promote yourself yeah i think so if you want to do a few little things you can get the word out pretty easily where's your inspiration come from or or some of your favorite spots in wherever in the world i mean i remember mm. we went on a on a trip once to seattle and we went to um what was the little shop what was it called again Salumi. yeah yeah that's it thank you god i yeah. can't believe i forgot that dude that was brutal we were so hung over oh, and we ordered so much food so much food <laughs> and, and there was like, there's like six of us yeah and i was like i'm waiting for this oh yeah we're for this and this and this and this and it all like landed you could kind of tell the 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 people in the kitchen and the servers were like giving us the eyebrow like you guys are fucked are you sure <laughs> you better not throw any of this food out because I mean, we look. waited, we waited <laughs> in that lineup too for a, a long enough time, and when we had that, I think you and I tried our best to like dive on the sword because everybody yep. else was just like again hungover and done. And I think I stuffed a, a, a one too many meatballs into my face. That's <laughs> Mario Batali's dad's place. That's right. Yeah, yeah, that's what it was. He, he's yeah. since sold it. Yeah. Um, I did, that trip I did to Italy. Um, for, for the slow food conference, I tacked a few days on, I went down South into Tuscany, um, and did a little tour. We were in Florence. I was there with my folks and we went South of Florence to a couple little places, visited some wineries, but visited Dario Cicchini's uh, temple of beef 
Macelleria Bisteca Antica Macelleria Bisteca, I think it's called. So mm-hmm. Dario Cecchini's this great butcher. He's the mad butcher of Panzano. Panzano's the town uh, in Chianti. And uh, he he worships the um, the Bisteca alla Fiorentina, which is the porterhouse end of a, of a short loin. And he does this great show, and you eat steak, and you you drink wine, and that was something. And on the way back, we stopped in a little town called Greve in Chianti. Um, and there was a small, actually not small, salumeria called Macelleria Falorni. And it was just this. And I'd, I'd been two years at the Whole Beast, so it was fairly new. Um, and it was just this mecca of, of Italian uh, salumi. And just went on and on. And they even had a museum of old equipment. Of like, I'm just such a nerd with the equipment and the technique and all that stuff. <laughs> and uh, they had this like this cool museum of of like gear and slicers and knives and I love that shit. Stuff. A meat boner. <laughs> yeah, it was cool. And and the the amount of like uh, stuff hanging above your head. They were they were doing a wild boar um, a wild boar prosciutto, but they left the uh, they left the fur on the outside and the tail on the wild boar. So there was these furry prosciutto hanging everywhere. I was like, Oh my God. Brilliant. (laughs) That was cool. Um, so the whole trip to to Italy in in the, at the, um, at the slow food conference, which was called Salone del Gusto. It was basically all the countries of the world that were part of slow food, each having a booth. Some of them were big, like great Britain had this huge pavilion and it was all about beer. You know, um, I've heard of uh, punk um, brewing. Um, it, it was very cool. Canada had a little table, you know, and um, I brought some stuff that I'd cured with, uh, from um, deer. So I did deer prosciutto and a deer brazala. Oh, and cool. and there was some there was Italians that went up to taste it and they're going, what? Prosciutto di cervo? <laughs> what? And they would turn around and go, hey, prosciutto di cervo, come here, come here. <laughs> this is prosciutto di canadiense. <laughs> like, oh, who brings, brings salumi to Italy? Yeah. <laughs> but it was like wild deer, and I, I couldn't sell it here. So it was, you know, somebody shot it, and I made that and bought it. Um, but going around, attached to the Salone del Gusto was a, a national food conference that's held every year in Italy. Oh, sorry, that's called the Salone del Gusto. And it's every province in Italy represented in these three huge buildings at this uh, huge conference center. And, of course, everybody has, every province has their own um, meat-curing culture, meat-curing style. And it was four days long, and and I don't I don't know if I got through half of it in four days. And my focus was meat, and I tried to try I tried to eat everything, and I was there every day. <laughs> You're professional. Yeah, it was, un, it was unreal. It was just the just the the scope the 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 amount of stuff that was there, and anybody who spoke English, you could ask them all you know whatever questions about how they were making stuff. I learned a ton and um, came back with almost too much inspiration from that. (laughs) Um, So that was, yeah, that was number one. That happened after I opened. Before that, it was mostly, you know, a lot of book learning, you know. (laughs) Right, right. 
Um, a few, three years ago, my wife, my daughter, and I went to Spain. That trip was born out of my desire to eat steak at uh, a restaurant in in Leon. I then so I, I wanted to go to this this restaurant. So I'm like, we need to go to Spain. I'll, I'll design a trip around it. I just recently met a supplier who was able to get me proper Hamon Ibirico in Victoria. He set me up with a tour of uh, of their their facility in uh, Guijuelo, um, not far from Salamanca, which is just west of Madrid. So we decided to fly into Madrid, rent a car, and we drove to Salamanca, um, drove down to this small town. The small town of Guijuelo really is, it only exists to make ham. Um, mm-hmm. the, the town is born of that industry. So there's just a bunch of warehouses, and they're all just full of, of hams um, and, salon, and, and, and sausage. And we pulled up to a nondescript building and met this fellow, um, and he took us in, and, and we basically did most, the better part of a day walking through their facilities, wow. learning about how they were curing their hams and making um, their dried sausages and chorizo. I learned t- some of the things that came back from that were, were you know, learning about different um, cultures and flora that I'd seen on my stuff here and, now, and just questioned had no real knowledge. Not even Belgium knew about this stuff. You know? <laughs> and I was there, and I, you know, at one point I, I pointed to a saucer. I said, "What is that mold?" And through a translator, he asked the guy. He's like, and he and he goes, "Oh, we call that the old man's beard. We love that. It only grows in this corner of the room, and it's <laughs> long and black, and it just it looks really bad, you know." And I've had it. I had it grow on my stuff, and I always just huh. wiped it off. He's like, no, no, it's good. That's the old man's beard. <laughs> so I, was, I, was, I felt so good. I was like, oh, I knew it wasn't bad. <laughs> well, that that actually was pretty much one of my last questions because I'm sure you get this all the time. But can you explain to people, as I, again, I'm sure you've answered it tons of times when people walk into your shop, but can you explain to people about the mold on the outside of the casing and what that means and that it's not a bad thing. Yeah, that was uh, certainly one of the, the learning curves for, for our customers at, at the beginning and, and I'm sure it well, was. certainly ongoing Yeah, because most of the stuff that I've already talked about doesn't have any mold on it. it was the, the culture was never introduced or it was removed before, um, before putting out. Uh, if you go to Europe, most, dried sausages have a mold culture on them and they're not afraid of it. So they'll, they'll go to the display case still with the mold on them. There's a very specific mold that we introduce and we actually buy it freeze dried. We mix it with distilled water and put it in a spray bottle and we spray it on the salami or copa or whole muscle as we introduce them to the drying room. Mold's very competitive. So Introducing a positive, good mold culture will prevent bad mold cultures. Once you have good hold of this white penicillium that we, we like, um, you don't have to worry about um, some of the more dangerous molds, orange and red and black. Although black mold doesn't grow on the sausage, it can grow on, on the walls of your chamber. Um, but if you've got a good, strong, healthy mold, it will it will compete and make sure those other ones don't exist in there. It also 
the mold also helps with the, when I was talking earlier about keeping the drying process even and slow, it coats the outside of the, uh, of the salami and keeps that area moist. So it stops that case hardening that we were talking about from happening mm -hmm. or helps to stop that. So it's another layer of protection. It keeps everything nice and moist and happy. Um, it also adds a element of flavor, like a mushroomy, earthy, umami characteristic to salami that's very authentic to Europe. Very authentic and not something that you see as much over here. If you go to Oyama and Vancouver, they're, they're the same. They don't shy away from the mold. You see their sausages are all white. Yeah. Um, a lot of customers come and ask us if it's salt because um, it kind of looks like a salt crust, you know. But it's it's... We love it. It's totally edible. It's it's a really important part of the of the process for us. Yeah, there are other ones that grow as well. There's a blue green mold that comes up uh, seasonally, usually spring, summer. It's actually called Penicillium salami, and it grows only on on meat and cured meat. It's got a blue green color, so there tends to be when people see that there's a asking a lot of your customers. Yeah, this <laughs> exactly. I mean, you see blue green, you think, Oh God, it's spoiled. In yeah. this case, it doesn't mean that, but we do, we'll remove that just, you know, just cause it, it, it's the white is what we want. Mm -hmm. But it, like I said, it only happens a few months of the year, but it's, it's completely harmless and delicious. And, you know, we encourage it. Hmm. Yeah. It's a good thing. Yeah. Amazing. Thank you. I don't have any further questions. I am totally blown away by yeah. how much I learned in this last hour. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, and yeah. I, I, I just sat here. I'm never this quiet. No, <laughs> I'm never this quiet. I'm just like, I love geeking out to this stuff. Thank oh, you for letting no, me do it. Goodness, oh, no. please. No, I, my I, pleasure. Again, like I said earlier, you've been uh, not only a, a gentleman every time I've ever reached out to you for help, but uh, you're one of my favorite people. And it, it's fantastic to uh, get a chance to actually talk to you about these things. And I hope people get a chance to, uh, to enjoy it too and learn. Thanks, friends. Appreciate yeah. that. Man. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, awesome. good talking to you guys. Can you, uh, if you have anything you want to talk about, if you want to pump the business, you want to talk about anything upcoming, I know that we're all kind of, you know, the, the, the brakes have been pumped on, on events and such. I know you used yeah. to do uh, what my favorite no, event actually, in the city. But. I do, and I, I normally don't really do that, but we, we want to try to pivot a little bit for Christmas because right now we can only get one person in the shop at a time. Um, which on a regular busy day isn't bad. People tend to have to sit outside a little longer, but everybody's doing that. So, um, and the butcher shop's the same, three people at a time. So we're going to build a an online ordering um, system, some kind of a web ordering type thing for this for Christmas when we know we're busy. Because one person in the shop, we're never going to get all the people through that want to come through. So we're going to try to. Uh, try to allow people to order ahead of time, pay ahead of time, and then come and pick up at the side door. So, yeah, just keep an eye out for for that once it's built. Then then that'll like be on get, Instagram as soon as that's ready. Yeah, we'll we'll post it on Instagram and then of course it'll be it'll be through our website. Awesome. Um, um other than that, like I'd, I wish I could promote promote events as well, but yeah. I just did Feast Tofino up in Tofino, that was fun. Oh, awesome. Um, you know, I I encourage everybody to do the uh, the um, Brewing the Beast homeschool series. It's tons of fun. Cool. Um, yeah, that's my favorite event, out. and I'm I'm so sad that that's uh, that's that's the one that really cuts me deep. 
Yeah. <laughs> no yeah, kidding. Me too. Yeah. I want some near and dear. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Thanks again, guys. Yeah, hey, seriously. Thank, thank you, you very Corey. much. Yeah, congratulations on the uh, on the 19th birthday. Yeah. Dad. Yeah. <laughs> Big milestone. Yeah, she made it. No. Yeah, made and it. you too. You still have most of your hair. No. <laughs> <laughs> Nancy the top. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Last customer has left the building. All that's left to do, mop, take out the trash. Thank you guys for joining us again. If you have any questions, thoughts, or episode ideas, you can email us at podcastitw at gmail.com. See you next time.